Hello, and thank you for joining us. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with App Point of Care and Projects in Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from GlaxoSmithKline. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash COPD1. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can be accessed in the episode notes. This is the first episode in our six-part series on chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD. In this episode, our experts will discuss the diagnosis of patients with COPD, particularly using the GOLD recommendations and the COPD assessment test. They will also touch on how the GOLD recommendations help in the management of exacerbations. And finally, our experts will talk about how primary care and pulmonologists can partner in treating patients with COPD. I'm your host, Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. We are joined by Dr. Jill Ohar, Professor of Pulmonary Critical Care, Allergy, and Immunologic Medicine at Wake Forest University School of Medicine, and by Dr. Barbara Yan, Adjunct Professor of Family and Community Health at the University of Minnesota. Dr. Yan is also the Chief Clinical Officer of the COPD Foundation in Washington, D.C. Dr. Ohar will begin our discussion. And welcome to our discussion on COPD and applying guideline recommended care. I'm Jill Ohar, and I'm joined by Barbara Yawn. Good to be with you, Jill. This should be a fun discussion. No, the pleasure's all mine. Barbara, let's talk about the typical COPD patient. You know, it was a surprise to me, and I'm sure it would be a surprise to many specialists, that 80% of all COPD management is done by primary care physicians. So clearly you're in the position to tell us most about how to make that diagnosis. When you're in your office and there's a patient sitting across from you, what kind of things do you look for in terms of demographics that may hint that this may be a patient who has COPD? Well, I think the first thing we about, of course, is age. Uh, I'm not going to think COPD in someone who's 20. Uh, I'm usually not thinking about COPD until they're in their 50s. Um, After that, I start obviously thinking about what did they come in for? What are their complaints? What are they telling me? And unfortunately, a lot of people don't come in and say, well, you know, I'm increasingly short of breath. I can't do as many activities as I did five years ago. We wish they would, but they don't. They either don't recognize it or they're denying it to themselves. So I may have to push a little bit if somebody does tell me they're short of breath. But the other thing that I find really helpful is looking back over their respiratory history over the last two, three years. Because a lot of times I find that these people have come in for two or three episodes a year that my colleagues or I may have called acute bronchitis, bad cold. They ended up coming back a couple of times for each episode. They eventually got antibiotics. Uh, So they had problems that 
are obviously recurrent in nature. And I think that is a really important tip-off is the recurrent respiratory problems. And then, of course, the smoking that we all think about. If they're not smoking, I want to think about other occupational things like are they a baker, uh, do they work in the logging industry or other industries that have a lot of air pollution uh, associated with it. So it really is a package. And one of the things I keep reminding myself about is it doesn't matter if it's a man or a woman women actually are more likely now to be diagnosed with COPD and have COPD than men. So it is not only men. It's not an old white guy's disease like we used to think of it in the VA years ago. So I should think about COPD with those kinds of a picture of symptoms and history, whether it's a man, a woman, regardless of race or ethnicity, especially in 50 years and older populations. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely correct. I mean, we always have been taught in medical school that the classic symptoms of COPD or uh, shortness of breath on exertion, cough, sputum, and wheeze. Um, but I also find that, that patients tend to, to downplay their symptoms. Um, and that's why it shouldn't be surprising that um, the, the mean FEV1 at the time of patients uh, are diagnosed. So within a year of diagnosis in one study uh, by Doug Maple was 58% of predicted. So, so clearly patients have lost substantial lung function by the time they come to light by their physician. Um, you pointed out occupational exposures, and I know that certainly in the Southeast and maybe some other areas of the country, uh, wood stoves were used frequently uh, in our patients. Uh, when they were growing up, their homes were heated with wood or kerosene stoves, and um, biomass fuel certainly is, is responsible for most of the COPD, especially in women in third world countries. And, and we frequently forget to ask that question. Have you uh, lived in a home with a wood stove or a kerosene stove? Um, if not now, before, uh, when you were growing up, when, when certainly um, postnatal alveolarization in the first two years of life would be critical, absolutely. Um, you brought up this issue of acute exacerbations of COPD, which patients have a, a code word for flares, cold. I have a cold. I have a, I have a, a bronchitis. And so patients come in with an increase in those so-called classic symptoms, uh, an increase in cough, an increase in shortness of breath, and an increase in the amount of sputum or a change in color of the sputum or wheeze. And so, again, this acute exacerbation of COPD doesn't have a laboratory test to make a diagnosis. It's just a worsening of the classic symptoms. Um, speaking of laboratory tests, tell me uh, about your use of pulmonary function testing or spirometry to make that diagnosis of COPD. Well, it's a little different now in the uh, pandemic era than it was before. 
certainly the people who come in and I am suspicious because of symptoms, history, things like that. In the past, I would have done spirometry. And it was very important for me to do it in the pre-COVID era, so to speak, because I was surprised how often it was worse or having a lower FED1 than what I expected. Uh, the patient looked like they were doing okay. Of course, they're sitting there in my office and they've been sitting resting for 10 minutes before I see them, so they don't look like they're short of breath and it isn't exercise related. But I thought it was extremely important um, to get that because I wanted what the lung function is. I want to know they have the obstructive pattern. And also, we can be fooled. I mean, a lot of the COPD symptoms, uh, perhaps not the chronic productive cough, but a lot of the other ones of the shortness of breath, being able to do less activities uh, than you used to do because of increasing dyspnea on exertion, can be cardiovascular uh, disease related. And so by getting the spirometry, I have some help in making the differential diagnosis and also figuring out how impaired the lungs are of this patient. Uh, so it was very important. Now, unfortunately, I'm not doing spirometry in my office. I think that uh, one of the things we always need to ask is more specific questions when we're considering the diagnosis. Uh, sometimes if I ask people, uh, do you have any problems doing your usual activities? Uh, do they make you short of breath? They say, oh, no, I'm fine. Well, that's not a very good question that I ask because a lot of people as they develop the symptoms and progression of COPD, change their activities. They quit doing things that make them short of breath. So if I ask them, do you get short of breath with your usual activities today? It's like, no, but the answer is really, it's because I don't go out and take walks anymore. I don't play golf anymore. I don't swim anymore. I don't uh, throw the baseball around with my grandson or granddaughter anymore because those all made me short of breath. So now I do a lot more reading and watching TV and sitting in my chair, and none of those make me short of breath. So be careful what we ask, and I've learned to try to be more specific because patients clearly change their activities so they're not feeling short of breath. You're absolutely right, Barbara. Um, and I think that's where the CAT, the COPD assessment test, can actually, in addition to giving you a number to, to use and compare from visit to visit of, of uh, severity of symptoms, it, it also um, provides a, 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 an impetus for discussion. Specifically, the question where you ask, do you get uh, short of breath um, or, or rate your symptoms on a scale of zero to five, and uh, that being shortness of breath um, when walking up a hill or a flight of stairs. And, and I think that puts some sort of structure around shortness of breath um, that patients otherwise will tend to downplay because they have altered their lifestyle to accommodate that increasing disability 
You've mentioned, I think, gold guidelines, gold recommendations. Um, and can you tell us a little bit about um, what, what is that gold, the global obstructive lung disease and, and their recommendations? We, we've mentioned already the fact that, that the gold says, well, to make a diagnosis, you need to do it with spirometry confirmation. You need to have an FEV1 to FEC ratio of less than 70% post-bronchodilator. We've already talked about the fact that uh, severity is graded into four different classifications um, based on FEV1. So if the FEV1 is still normal, uh, that's gold one, so greater than 80%. If the FEV1, post-bronchodilator FEV1 is falls in the range of 50 to 79%, then that's gold two, that's moderate COPD. Uh, severe COPD is when the FEV1 falls below 50% and very severe COPD is when the FEV1 falls below 30%. So these are all spirometrically determined variables. But as we mentioned before, as you get into treatment, treatment is symptom-based, and you've already begun to talk about the MMRC and the CAT, the COPD assessment test. So can you tell us, how do you use those to make a decision about treating patients, especially as you uh, discuss that in, in um, and around the gold recommendations? Well, that's a, a great way to lead into to gold uh, recommendations because they have changed a little bit. Uh, now we have the boxes that I think most people are familiar with, the A, B, C, D, and we'll talk about what those are in a second. But those are now used only really to initiate therapy because I have to have some basis to decide how am I going to start therapy? Uh, do I start therapy with short-acting bronchodilator PRN because the patient hardly ever has any symptoms, maybe once a week? Well, I have to tell you in my practice that almost never happens uh, because I don't unfortunately make the diagnosis that early. Most of them are symptomatic most days before I, I'm able to make the diagnosis. But then uh, we do go on to think about how we use the symptom level and exacerbations, which remember, before you make the diagnosis, may not have been called exacerbations, but these events we talk about. So the ABCD, people think, oh, my goodness, that's complicated. No, it's not. The A and B are the bottom row, and then the... A and C are the left-hand column, and the B and D are the right-hand column. So if you think about it as columns and rows, I think that helps. If we divide it by the rows, the bottom two rows are people who don't have very frequent exacerbations, especially in the previous year, because that's what we use. People who have had zero or one exacerbation and no hospitalizations for COPD are in the bottom row. People have had two or more exacerbations or been in the hospital once for it for COPD, they're in the top row. So now you have separated uh, you know, the A 
and C, or the A and B, I'm sorry, from the C and D, okay? That's the first. Then how do I decide, let's say they're in the A, B row. How do I decide they're in A or in B? Well, this is where I use the symptoms, and that's the CAT or the MMRC. As you said, you can score CAT, uh, and a score of 10 or greater is considered a significant symptom burden, and that would push them from the A, low symptom, over into the B, high symptom. Well, now the row for C and D is the same kind of thing. Remember, these are the people with more exacerbations, and C would be low symptom burden, and D is high symptom burden, and increased risk for exacerbations. I have to tell you, I almost never see anybody in C that has very few symptoms and lots of exacerbations. There are some, but they're uncommon. So That's in summary then, um, just to clarify, uh, so the people who have few exacerbations are AB. The people who have two or more exacerbations or at least one hospitalization in the preceding year are the CDs. People with low symptom burden, uh, that means they'd have a CAT score of less than 10 or a MMRC score of zero to one, they'd be the ACs. And the people who have a high symptom burden, that means a CAT score of 10 or greater or an MMRC score of two or greater, they'd be the BDs. Is that right? That's correct. And it's important to realize that in the last few years, the gold recommendations really have put more and more emphasis on symptoms and risk for exacerbations, realizing that it's useful to know about their FEV1-based severity, but that does not map over to the symptom or exacerbation burden completely. So we need patient-oriented decisions on therapy, and that's why we use symptoms and exacerbations for those. So that's, you know, when we first start. Now, the newest uh, level of the, or the 2019 gold recommendations have a little bit different way of changing therapy once we've initiated it. And that is then has a flow chart for people whose major problems continue to be dyspnea and people whose major problems continue to be exacerbations. And those flow charts we could talk about in more detail, but that's a little bit different and it's a change. But most of the time, if we're thinking about starting therapy, it's the ABCD and the therapies for the symptoms, which are usually the cuffing or dyspnea, uh, really relate to bronchodilators and the long-term bronchodilators. That's what we're going to start in most people who have lots of symptoms but don't have lots of exacerbations. When they have addition to lots of symptoms, they have lots of exacerbations, that's when we start thinking about adding the inhaled corticosteroids. Because the indication for inhaled corticosteroids at this time is exacerbation prevention. And we need to keep remembering that so that these people who don't have very many exacerbations are really not candidates for the inhaled corticosteroids. 
they are candidates for bronchodilators, either one or dual bronchodilator therapy. And I have to admit that unfortunately, I tend to make my diagnosis a little later than I'd like to. And most of my patients are pretty symptomatic uh, by the time that I figure it out. And so I usually start dual bronchodilator therapy uh, in almost all of them. And if I need to, then I may add the inhaled corticosteroids. I don't always jump immediately to the inhaled corticosteroids, even if they do have exacerbations when I'm first beginning therapy, because we know that the LABA and LAMAs, which is the long-acting beta-2 agonist and the long-acting muscarinic antagonist, which is what LABA and LAMA stand for, they do have some impact on reducing exacerbations. And if those two used together will reduce the exacerbations, then I don't have to yet add ICS. If they don't, then I have to add the ICS. So then to recap, there there are basically four different categories of medicine that you can potentially give to patients for their COPD. There's the long-acting beta-adrenergic, the long-acting muscarinic agent, the inhaled glucocorticoid, and then a phosphodiesterase inhibitor. Now, when we're starting therapy, if I, if I have you correct here, um, we're, for the most part, we're talking about patients in the B category because it's so, so atypical to find somebody who is virtually asymptomatic or very little symptomatic and also doesn't have exacerbations, they just aren't going to come see you. So for the most part, patients in the A category, we don't see. The first patients that we're going to see in terms of severity, severity of symptoms, would be the patients in the B category. They have a CAT score of 10 or more. Um, They have zero to one uh, exacerbations in the previous year. They do not, they have not been hospitalized for an exacerbation in the last year. That would uh, push them up into the CD category. Um, And and those are patients that you, um, if I listened correctly, you would start um, a long-acting beta and a long-acting muscarinic agent for. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, And, you know, now we have those two agents in a single inhaler. A few years ago, we would have had to give them two inhalers, which uh, was really a barrier to using uh, the dual bronchodilator therapy. But now there are several agents that have both of these types of bronchodilators in one inhaler, which is great. We all know we want to use the fewest number of inhalers, the fewest number of times per day uh, that makes sense for that patient and their symptoms. Uh, So, yes, I would start with that type of therapy for most of the people and pretty much every one of the, the people I see that are in the B box. And it's important to remember that everyone that you see who has COPD should go home with a short-acting beta-adrenergic for rescue. Um, And I think that that sometimes we just forget to make that order because patients do need those. Now, Barbara, if somebody is in the D category, and as you've already mentioned, these are gonna be the C and D 
are going to be people who have at least one hospitalization in the last year or two or more exacerbations. And for the most part, they're going to be symptomatic. So you're not going to see very few people in the C category who are having these exacerbations but aren't symptomatic. So most of those patients who have a lot of exacerbations or maybe a hospitalization are going to be in the D category. And so in addition, let me ask again if I've got it correct, in addition to the long-acting beta-adrenergic and the long-acting muscarinic, this is the group of patients that you may consider it right in the beginning, starting um, with an inhaled glucocorticoid or a phosphodiesterase inhibitor in addition to their long-acting uh, bronchodilators. Is that correct? Well, that's partially correct. I certainly will consider adding the inhaled glucocorticosteroid or ICF. Uh, I may, in those that have not been hospitalized and had two exacerbations, but they weren't really disabling exacerbations that lasted, uh, you know, long, long periods of time, I may see what happens with their exacerbations over the next few months with just using the two bronchodilators together. Now, for people who've been in the hospital, uh, I am going to probably go ahead and start those people on the inhaled corticosteroids uh, or the ICS in addition. I tend not to immediately, uh, the first time I see someone, start them on the PDE4 inhibitors. I really am going to see what happens. It's sort of stepwise, in my opinion, that I try the dual bronchodilator, I will then add the ICS, uh, or if they've been in the hospital, I'll do ICS plus dual bronchodilator, and see how they're doing before I add the PDE4 inhibitor uh, for a couple of reasons. One, it's just another medication, uh, and I don't want to start any more than I have to, and it has significant side effects. And often, if I have somebody in whom the ICS plus the dual bronchodilator therapy is not keeping them uh, sufficiently lower symptoms and preventing exacerbations, I often ask my pulmonology colleague for a consultation. Are there anybody else that you can think of um, that would, or any other symptoms or kind of patient? Um, that would trigger referral to a specialist? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, the people whom I can't control the exacerbations or their symptoms are not improving, really important. But there are also uh, younger people. If I've got someone in their 50s uh, and they have really quite low lung function, uh, I'm going to ask my pulmonary colleague to see them. Uh, if I have someone whose COPD seems to be progressing more rapidly than I expected to, uh, then I am going to say, gee, this is a problem, uh, and I want my pulmonary colleagues uh, to help. If there's any indication of anything else, certainly anybody that I do the alpha-1 antitrypsin screening and it's positive, uh, they're going to see one of my pulmonary colleagues immediately. 
we do need to think about uh, when and where we are uncomfortable and be real honest with ourselves about this is a problem. There is another interesting group, and those are the ones who get the CT screening because they're long-term smokers, and I'm screening for lung cancer. And when I get the results back, it turns out they have significant emphysema. Then I'm also going to send those people to the pulmonologist to see if there's other therapy that would be appropriate for them, whether it's lung volume reduction or some of the new valves and things like that. So they're a small group, but I don't want to forget them either. Well, that's, that's great. I, you mentioned earlier the concept of stepping up or stepwise therapy. So you have the initial therapy based on, on the four categories, A, B, C, and D. Um, and then you like to add a PDE4 or even perhaps an inhaled glucocorticoid at the time of reassessment. And, and as we've mentioned earlier in this podcast, new to the gold recommendations is the management cycle where it's review, assess, adjust, review, assess, adjust, and on and on. And so part of that could be not only stepping up therapy, but also stepping down therapy. It's possible that um, depending upon uh, your personal approach, you could start with triple therapy or maybe even quadruple therapy in somebody who's been frequently hospitalized and then step back once you, once you gain control. Um, when you are in that management cycle, in addition to adding or subtracting medicines, are there any other factors that you're looking at that would help you decide, geez, I, I want to add a drug or, or any other things that are part of that assessment? Oh, absolutely. And I do want to stress that you can only follow this cycle if you have the patients coming back for follow-up visits. One of the things that we do have a problem in primary care is we don't always get these patients into the regularly scheduled follow-up visits. I mean, we would never think about taking care of someone with diabetes without having them come back every three to six months. I think that pulmonary rehab is, is a great first part um, of your therapy and kind of lays the groundwork really for everything else. The teaching they get, the education about their drugs, the, in addition to the device, um, our pulmonary rehab also does the O2 titrations, and a lot of times um, we are unaware that a patient is going to be uh, or is hypoxic during exertion. Again, for the very reason, Barbara, you brought up earlier, which is this concept that they've altered their lifestyle to accommodate a growing disability. So in, in the normal course of events, they, they don't desaturate, but once they get the pulmonary rehab, they do desaturate, and that monitoring that it takes place there allows us to go, ooh, this person needs oxygen to facilitate their uh, reconditioning that, that they're getting at pulmonary rehab. Jill, I think this is where primary care and specialty care may diverge a little bit. Yeah. Remember that often when I'm giving them this diagnosis, it is in a seven to 10 minute visit. Yeah. It is not in a long visit. This is the first time they've heard those words COPD. They haven't heard much I've said 
after I said COPD. So I'm going to give them the absolute crucial messages on that first visit, and then I'm going to see them back in about two weeks to at the most four weeks, virtually or in person. It is then that they're going to be, I think, more open and able to listen for me to talk about in addition to this new medicine I gave you, the smoking cessation support, checking on your immunizations, I did all that at the first visit and tried to give them a little bit of picture of what COPD was like. This next visit, I'm gonna talk about, and by the way, we have some other very helpful things to do uh, besides what we've talked about, and pulmonary rehab is one of them, and let me tell you all about it. So. This is perhaps the difference between you may have a little bit longer time. You frequently don't see them the first time somebody tells them they have COPD, while I do. So I think pulmonary rehab is crucial. It's important in any stage of COPD, but I've got to wait until I think the patient is ready to hear about it. So certainly you have brought up an important concept, which is. Uh, patients not only expectations uh, of what they're going to hear from you and how to manage their disease, but, but also their response to the diagnosis. And I think it's very important to realize that even as a, as a pulmonary specialist, and I think certainly as a primary care doc, um, I think your experience is similar to mine, that patients often feel that a diagnosis of COPD or emphysema is a death sentence. And so we should bear that in mind um, when we go forward with other things that uh, would be important in their management. Um, I think at this point, the last thing we should cover is, uh, as a pulmonologist, uh, there are probably niceties or etiquette of co-management that I am unaware of that a PCP has uh, as an expectation of me, and the inverse is also true. Can you highlight some of those things that you would want a specialist to do for you or with you to make that co-management go uh, more uh, readily? Yes, and, and one of the first things is something I need to do. I need to tell you why I sent you the patient. What are my ex expectations as the primary care clinician? Uh, because if I just send you somebody and say, hey, would you check out their COPD? You really don't have enough data. So I need to send you a good history and I need to send you uh, a request. I mean, you may do more than what I request, but I at least need to tell you what I need help with. After that, when you finish seeing them, I, it depends on what the relationship is and, and what's available. I really like it when I get a call. Uh, it may be a call at the end of the day uh, or something like that, but it, I still like personal contact. Uh, so a call, uh, even a video conference sometimes, uh, doesn't have to take long, but just your summary of what you saw, where you thought I was on track, where you thought I might've been off track a little bit, what extra things did you do? And what did you tell the patient uh, so that I know exactly what the messages that we need both of us 
giving the patient because sometimes if you say one thing and I don't know you've said it, I say something different and then the poor patient is very confused and the family is pretty irritated also. So I think that's really important that you send, and maybe you call me, but you certainly send me back either a note through the EMR if we happen to share one or you send me a letter that I can scan and put in my medical record. So I know really exactly what you did, exactly what you thought, and any recommendations you have for what I should do. Well, thanks, Barbara. That was really helpful. And I think a lot of times we fail to realize that there is physician-to-physician -physician etiquette um, that in the end, both, both parties involved in terms of physicians as well as the patients are, are winners uh, if we observe some of those rules. So Barbara, this has been a really interesting discussion today. Is there anything you want to add before we conclude this podcast? The only thing I just remind people is that we're not alone in this as primary care clinicians. We do have our pulmonary colleagues and we do have our patients as partners. Uh, so don't forget to use the uh, expertise and tools of the whole team. Super. Thank you for joining us today. Remember to go to morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash COPD1 to receive your credit and evaluate this program. And be sure to join us for the second part of this series at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash COPD2. Dr. Ohar will be joined by Dr. Melan Han for a discussion about dual therapy treatments for COPD. You can also find a listing of all the episodes in this podcast series at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash COPD. COPD.